if everybody is passionate about the customer and if they feel they know the customer, if they have empathy for the customer, they're going to build better software. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armin will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Kai Vandaloo here with us, and he's CTO or Chief Technology Officer at User Testing, a company that actually I have used their services quite a few times in the past. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us, Kai. So if you could please tell us a little bit about yourself and also the company and you know what you guys do, what kind of problems you are addressing. Yeah, thanks, Arman. I've been with user testing for about three years now as chief technology officer, and uh, it's been an amazing journey. We, when I came in, we really had this mission of bringing human insight into any decision making, of just helping people make better decisions, particularly around developing products and experiences. We've seen the power of the human insight, just as, as you mentioned, like you've used the product, you, you know what it looks like when you have somebody go through your experience and share their thoughts out loud. Three years ago, this was more of a UX research methodology. And then we've been on this journey to try to bring it to more people, to put it into the hands of whole organizations that can then build better products faster because they have access to these human insights. It's been an amazing three years here at user testing. Before that, I've spent more than 20 years in various engineering and product management positions in the enterprise software industry. Back in the old days, it was on-premise software, and for the past decade or so, it's been in the SaaS world. And then when user testing has started, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how it started? What was the history or the story actually behind the, you know, company and then led it to the start of the company? And Yes, it's actually quite an interesting story. Our two founders, Daryl and Dave, were, they had some other web company back in the early 2000s and then, especially Dave is very interested in usability and, and the user experience you provide. So they were trying to get feedback on their website. And you know what websites looked like back then. They were very hard to navigate. And so they would 
make designs and as the story goes they would go to a safeway and ask people in the checkout line where they had nothing else to do what they thought about his design that he had sketched on paper and he would gather that feedback before they implemented it and they thought this this is great it's just it's a little cumbersome to go to a safeway and grab people at the checkout line you should be able to do this online so that's how the company was born really with a mission to make the web more usable and both daryl and dave are very generous well-meaning people so they generally had the idea that by helping people test the experiences they will make the whole web a better place for everyone so that was the genesis of the company and it started out with a pay-as-you-go model and then as customers started using it more they started asking for monthly contracts annual contracts and now it has kind of grown into a pretty classic enterprise SaaS model with a lot of we have lots of larger clients some of the largest companies in the world are our customers and uh, it's a pretty classic enterprise SaaS model fantastic and then I know that you personally, you have plenty of experience on the agile development methodologies and the working, the software industry, that kind of movement toward agile kind of development uh, is one of the things that you pay attention to and you think about. How do you see the relationship between the user kind of experience moving to a, you know, I would say it has been upward. So user experience getting better and better over time and agile development also getting into the place and those methodologies are more common compared to a decade or two decades ago. Do they kind of impacted each other in a way or related to each other or it was just two independent movement coming and then happened to happen at the same time? I think they're closely related. If you think about it, like in the old waterfall model, the whole idea was to make all decisions up front and then just execute on. So you had to put a lot of research in, have to make really good decisions, and then you would have a whole team work on executing on those decisions. With a more agile model, we make decisions all the time. In each sprint, you make some progress, you make you get feedback and you tweak what you're working on. So you have spread out the decision making in the organization. So everybody makes decisions and you have spread it over time, which is ideal for the kind of user testing that we do, which is super easy. Like most of our, we call them sessions, most of the feedback that you collect comes back within a few hours. I think the typical wait time is less than half an hour. So it's very fast feedback. If you launch a test, uh, you, you ask for feedback. When you leave the office, you have it the next morning. If you launch a test in the morning, you're likely to have the results by lunchtime. So it fits very well with an agile model where you can tweak, you can make changes all the time, and therefore we can very quickly gather feedback and uh, weave it into any agile model. We have many customers who who use us exactly that way. That when they, And then you can test, you can get feedback on anything. If it's a design, uh, you can do it early on or if it's just a concept a sketch you can get feedback on it if it's a 
finalized design in Figma or Envision or something, you can get feedback on it. If it's a prototype, you can get feedback on it. If it's in production, you can get feedback on it. And when you weave this into your processes, I think your best practice is, for example, you do benchmarking maybe once a quarter or so. You test everything you have in production. You get feedback. You prioritize your investments based on where there is potential for improvement. And then you kick off like an agile uh, design and development process to to improve that part of the experience throughout that agile development. You test, 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 you get feedback and feedback and feedback. And then you put it into production. You already know that it improves the overall experience because you've been getting this feedback along the way. You run a new benchmark and you see what, where to go and invest next. You mentioned in the past, not during this question, but I heard the word enterprise agile, or I read something you wrote about it. And then does it indicate that, for example, you have in mind two different agile development? One is enterprise agile. One is, for example, if you are a B2C company, a totally different kind of agile. And you see these two kind of, you know, maybe two different versions that you cannot go with the same methodology and apply to both worlds. This is something I've been thinking about quite a lot since I first started using Agile methodologies. If you read the Agile Manifesto and all the books and all the smart people who've been writing and speaking about Agile, there are never any commitments made in this. And I come from a very traditional enterprise software background where you make roadmaps, you commit to customers that you're going to deliver a certain piece of functionality at a certain time. So you need some form of long-term planning so that you can make commitments. And especially now with the younger engineers, they all go, oh, this sounds like waterfall. I don't want to do this. I want to be agile. But we have to. We're running a business. We're, we're not in this for the beauty of the methodology. We, our customers want to know. They build practices around our software. They spend a lot of money implementing it, training people on it. So they want to know what do they get when. So we have to make these commitments, which maybe isn't that agile, but like once we have made the commitment, we better execute on it. And and that's where I think agile methodologies work very well in an enterprise setting because you can execute towards that commitment that you've made, but it doesn't mean that you can pivot entirely halfway through and go build something else just because it's more promising because you have people waiting for the result that you've, you've uh, committed to. So I think in a way, I've never done any B2C development, but to me, it seems a little easier because you don't have commitments to your users in the same way. Yeah, I can tell you for sure. <laughs> That since I made a mistake once in my life to say, let me do B2C, you know, <laughs> then as soon as I got involved into that part, actually, I don't know if it's because I have done B2B for for startups I had so far, or it's because I know that part better, or if it's because really B2C has so many caveats that, you know, that has to be done perfectly fine and it's not as forgiving as B2B is, 
but I can testimony that part for sure that B2C, everything has to be perfectly done because essentially consumer is not going to have the patience of a business user has not made that kind of big commitment to really say, okay, I will send the question, I will get the answer, we'll fix it, we'll go forward. No way. If the B2C software is less than perfect and you are losing, there is no feedback coming to you at that point. And you may not even notice that why this software is not getting where it's supposed to be. And you're counting on those very zero friction model, very easy, intuitive kind of ways of understanding the software and going and the expectation is different. So that has been my experience with the kind of B2C. So I have a totally new respect for kind of how really tough is to make a really B2C software work well and spread out and get the user base and everything. But at the same time, again, maybe, maybe, you know, sometimes you do what you do best and you know best and it's easier just because that's your comfort zone, maybe. But definitely I can see user testing, how helpful it can be on both fronts. It can be helpful for, you know, enterprise like software applications and kind of B2B and it can be the same. I mean, it can be very helpful also for a B2C, especially for B2C, it will be even more critical for them to have such a tool. So they know that when they go to market, everything is going to, you know, play well. Yeah. And we have our customers are both B2C and B2B. I think the, the use cases and value drivers still are very similar. It is like knowing upfront that people are going to like what you're building is invaluable in both cases. So it, I think the whole idea of getting these human insights into the decision-making of getting the direct feedback from the users is applicable for any experience you create. And a nice thing that we see happens over time when you do this is that your whole team starts building empathy for the end user. You suddenly have people talk about, like you have developers, product managers, designers, they all talk about what they've learned from the end user. You develop this passion for what your user is doing, what the value proposition to the user is, why they are using your software, what they feel, what they think while they do so. And uh, that I think is a big strength in a product organization. If everybody is passionate about the customer and if they feel they know the customer, if they have empathy for the customer, they're going to build better software. Of course, you are providing the platform. So I can come to your platform and do my own kind of self-service manner, just run the user testing and bring some people and then they test it or whatever. But also, I wonder if you provide that as a service as well, if somebody wants that a study to be run by a professional, because sometimes this is my personal experience again, that sometimes it's difficult to ask the right question. So you may go through the exercise and then you go, but if you are not thinking enough and preparing enough and you are not asking the right questions, the answers that you get is not going to be as helpful. And I think that part is the part that maybe someone with experience can come in for some of them. I'm not saying every user testing needs to be like that, but I see that in some cases you may want to really make sure you are 
taking that kind of advice and consulting and then asking the right questions because that's really important. Otherwise, the data comes in. It's not as insightful as you may think. Yes, that is very true. And we try to solve that, that problem in many ways. We're a software company and, and we want to make it as easy as possible to use uh, what we provide. So we have a lot of templates that we have created and that we've learned from our customers that they need. So we have a whole template gallery where you can go in and you can search among, I think it's over a hundred templates now for different types of feedback that you want to gather. Customers can also develop their own templates. So if you have maybe one or two skilled people within the organization who know how to ask questions and who know how to get feedback, they can create templates for everybody else to use. So we have some of our largest customers, they have a central team that enables decentralized teams, for example, design teams, product management teams, or whole like squads that have maybe one product manager, one designer, a number of developers to do their own testing. So they develop, they work with these teams, they develop templates for them, and then each team can run their own testing uh, without having to ask the central team for help. And then we also have a professional services organization that can come in and help you set up your testing, can help you develop your templates and then the test plans for your use case. And uh, we also have a number of partners if you need uh, also design services and all of that. We have a number of agencies that use our software as part of their whole value delivery. So one question I have on the kind of the, the relationship between, between the kind of product analytics, or I would say user behavioral analysis use case, and what you do on the user testing because this seems to me, I have a question about how these two relate, because if I have the user testing, maybe I can ask better questions if I had the insight and some data from the user behavioral analysis report, if I could see my user's behavior for especially SaaS companies that already have a product in the market, and then they could go there and say, Maybe this segment of the users are not utilizing these capabilities of the product that much versus the other segment maybe are not utilizing this set of data in the product and those kind of things. Then they can come up with better questions Then they come to do the user testing and actually learn how come these users are not interested or this segment of users are not interested in these particular capabilities to better figure out how to address that because their understanding probably is we are adding these features, we are spending R&D budget, we are building this stuff and if people are not utilizing, then they need to understand why, right? So, so are these two come kind of side by side? Do you see that companies actually need to use both at the same time to get the best out of new user testing result or um, kind of disconnected here i i think you you're making a very good point i would certainly consider it a best practice in understanding your users in looking at the the web analytics type the traffic analytics because there you capture every single user and every single interaction so you get these the broad picture about what are people doing 
in the real world? What, as you said, what are they using? What are they not using? And that helps you understand the broad usage patterns. And then you can zoom in and if you find something interesting in your analytics and you can say, okay, then why is this happening? What do people think when they go to that part of the software or when they do not go where you want them to go? Why did they not click there? And uh, that's where user testing really helps answer those questions. And somewhere between these two, you have surveys and those kind of feedback mechanisms as well, which can deliver valuable insights. But like reading survey results doesn't quite sizzle the way that watching a video of somebody using the software and speaking out loud, speaking directly to you about their experience, like a survey response doesn't evoke the same emotions. You don't build a lot of empathy by looking at an NPS survey. It's It can provide interesting data, but uh, the it's these, the, the human element of what we do that I think ultimately leads to better decision-making. And we're partnering with, for example, Quantum Metric, who have one of these more analytics-focused solutions so that you in Quantum Metric, you can see what's going on, what are all the users doing. And then, as you mentioned, you can see maybe there's a segment of users that perform some strange actions or do not do the expected. And then you can, from there, launch a user test for that part of the user journey, for that segment of users. And then we, we link these results back so that you can see what all users did and you get the human feedback about what some people think when they use it. So I think they're very complementary. They go very well together in your decision making. And then looking forward in the future, the user interface and the user experience can be also maybe done differently. I think one of the things thinking about, for example, AI, that if the behavior of the software is not just designed and dictated by the developer, but maybe a kind of intelligence sitting besides the client, besides the end users and observing them has a better chance to maybe make some improvements or some adjustments as simple as possible, but it still can be a big positive impact. For example, if I'm using this option you know, more often, it might be not a good example, but in my kind of simple-minded, you know, user, when I use this user interfaces, web forms on the kind of internet, many times I, I use the same option, but I go there again and again, the same option, and it's not getting more accessible to me, learning that I always change this and then change this and change and pick this item. And it's still, even if I do it 200 times, I have to do the same. It doesn't change, you know, on the other side, the behavior. Also, it could, you know, just learn that this particular user is, has done it 200 times. Let me just make it easier and maybe suggest that this is really what you do. Do you want me to remember and do it again? How do you see those kind of interactions that can be done in the future? And how does it change the user experience and UI? I think a more personalized experience is going to be an absolute must. Like if you have to go in 
and change or go through some awkward path over and over again, people are going to lose patience with that. So I think a more learning from the user's behavior and tailoring the experience based on that is, and you don't need much machine learning for that. It's very simple to do. What I find even more exciting is an experience in the future where the software can do a lot of the thinking and then interacts with you and presents you suggestions. If you think about it, since the birth of enterprise software, the interaction model has always been that some human initiates a conversation, initiates a dialogue with the system. You, you, run a, you log in and you run a query or you enter some data, and only then does the software wake up and start doing something. I think we now have the ability to let the software just churn through all the data it has, apply all kinds of rules and algorithms to it, and see if there's anything interesting in there, and then reach out to you and say, hey, here is something I suggest that you do. Here is uh, something you should know about. And it can reach through any channel. If you want a direct message in Twitter, you get a direct message in Twitter. If you want a Slack message, you want a notification in Microsoft Teams, whatever it is, the software can find you, present you with something that it believes is interesting and maybe suggest an action so that you don't need to go to the system every day to check something. This is, I believe, a an interaction model that is much better for humans. It's, it's much more like we're having a dialogue here. We talk to each other. And it, the whole dialogue format where we're used to having other people come to us and ask questions or make suggestions, why shouldn't software behave the same way as people do? Now, going back to your experience as a product manager, and working with a software company that there are some developers and then, you know, you wanted to have that product management team in place. There are many SaaS companies that started, you know, almost every week, every day, every year, many of them are getting started and they wanted to build the product team and add the product management. From your experience, when is the best time to really have the product management? Is it day one? Is it after some engineers are in place and 510, whatever? And what is the right structure as they grow from 10 people development team to 50 people to 100 people? What is the right way to really build and expand the product management so these SaaS companies can get the best out of that product management experience? I think you need product management from day one. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need product managers. When I started at SAP in the early 90s, we didn't have product managers. We had developers. And as developers, we were out talking to customers. We had deep conversations about the business problems they were trying to solve, understanding what they were doing. And then we went back and coded it up. Then like over time, this 
requirements gathering and also the outbound communication back to the customers became a function of its own. We had then product managers who did this. And I think as a startup, you can very well go through that same journey that if you hire developers who actually have an interest in the, the domain, the business domain that your software is in and the, the business problems that your software is addressing, if the developers understand that, I think they can do product management uh, on their own for a while. But I think they then have to be given the time, the resources, the coaching to do so. It's not something that just anybody can go do naturally. So I think, but, but if you coach them, if you train them, I think you can get away with that for a while. But then not all developers want to do this. Not all developers are particularly good at it. And I think also with the, the pace of technical evolution and keeping up with all the tools and frameworks and everything around us, development has become a little more specialized and a little more technical over the past 25 years. But I, I still think that the best enterprise software developers are those that have a strong interest in the business problems of their customers and that can partner with product management in this and that enable product managers to really spend time on more strategic topics and engaging deeply with customers. And I think you, you mentioned it earlier, I think one of the biggest challenges for enterprise SaaS companies today is to get adoption of all the things we develop. Like there's every product has so many features and can do so much that getting that out into the hands of customers and actually getting them to use it is a, a job in itself. And I think it's a very important part of product management is communicating with your customer facing colleagues to equip them to talk to customers about all the capabilities and working directly with customers on how how best to deploy the product and how best to use it for each use case. Do you have a magic number in mind, the ratio, for example, for some areas like QA to engineering team who are developing code? You know, it's something that you hear in different practices. It's normally somewhere between either, you know, one QA to four developers. And I have seen even cases in some companies that one QA to two, two engineers, that is very high ratio. And the, again, other part is just one QA to four. When, when it comes to the size of the product management team compared to the overall size of the engineering team, and I know it depends on the software, it depends on the segment, but I'm kind of thinking if there's any magic number or a range, like what exists in QA now that, again, as I said, there's a range, you can go within this range. Is there any particular range that you have seen or it is really case by case? Yes, I've seen a pretty narrow range. I think most companies have maybe one product manager for every six to eight developers, something like that. But I do think that it depends so much on what the product manager actually does. We have, I've seen 
people who call themselves product managers who are kind of glorified project managers that are very detailed. They manage every little Jira ticket and they tell the developers what to go do. I wouldn't consider that product management, but they still call themselves product managers. And and they, if you have people who, who work like that, very close deeply in the engineering organization, you need more of them. I think if you have engineers do that, if you have a culture where the engineers are very engaged in why are we building things and what are we building, you need maybe fewer, relatively speaking, fewer product managers. So I think it depends a lot on, on your culture. I personally strongly believe that the latter culture where everybody is involved in why are we building this, for whom are we building this, how are they going to be using it, makes for stronger, more resilient teams that build better software. Another kind of question on the product management and what we have seen, I read a report somewhere that at least in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley, I think 50% of really CEOs of software companies' background comes from product management. Even if I don't take that number right in my mind, because that was four or five years ago when I read this report, I know that it was actually the biggest amongst many others. So you have CEOs coming from finance background, you have CEOs coming from engineering background, marketing background, sales background, and amongst all of those, product management was the highest. So I know that part, I'm taking that part, right? Percentage-wise, I might you know, go a little bit up or down, but what I remember was actually astonishing, was close to 50%. That was a very big percentage. Is it a new trend? Is it something that it makes sense to you knowing product management and knowing the CEO job that both of them probably have to work with a variety of people in the company and both of them, the job is to kind of providing the supporting different team members, serving them and then making them more productive. Is it the reason? Is this the reason? Do you... Do you, would you agree with this kind of trend that it exists for a reason and actually it can make, you know, a person a better CEO if the person actually has had that experience of product management and working with sales, marketing, development, all aspects of the company and have a very good understanding of, you know, the product and the engine behind a software company that actually is all about providing that product to the market and to customers? I, I think you're spot on that as a product manager, you're essentially the CEO of your little part of the product. And, and you've got, as, as our CEO, Andy, who has a background in product management, says, like, as a product manager, you're responsible for everything, but you don't really have authority over anything. So I think if you're good at that, if you're a good product manager, you develop these skills that you lead by influencing others. You lead by convincing others to go in the direction you want them to go. You become a good orchestrator, good coordinator. You become sensitive to everybody's needs. And so I think it's a very good background to have for a CEO. I think good product managers make good CEOs. I would like to ask you as the last question, do you have any particular book that has impacted your work and your life 
positively and you would like to share with the audience? Such a classic, I'm almost embarrassed to mention it, but I read Crossing the Chasm every now and then. I think it is so full of deep and timeless truths that certainly every product manager and ideally everybody in our business should read it every now and then. I think it is extremely well thought through. It's well written. It's a fun read. And it all, every time I read it, I remember something new from it. So I think it's a fantastic book. I don't know if everybody has already read it, but if they have, I would read it again. That, that's a good point. I have had the same experience with some other books that you read it again, now you're a different person because you read it last time, it was five, 10 years ago with a totally different level of experience. And maybe you didn't absorb some of the points that, you know, made there. And now you read it and then, oh, you resonate with more. You resonate with a lot of points there. So that's a great point that even if somebody has read it, maybe they should consider, you know, reading it again. And this is uh, definitely one of those master you know, pieces that we have. And sometimes, honestly, I think that um, maybe there should be certain books that you have to read and even pass a test <laughs> before you are allowed to start any software business because otherwise, you know, you are going to make more mistakes. You are going to just, you know, waste more resources and everything. But you could just, you know, maybe read those, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 books that give you so much value. And then, uh, you know, it's not different than when you want to drive a car, you have to read a book and then go and take a test. Otherwise you are not allowed to drive a car. So <laughs> it's not super. Especially if you have co-founders, you should read the same set of books together because they give you a language. They give you a common way of thinking of phrasing a problem or a situation. So I think that's something I like to do very much in the organizations I work in is have people read, whether it's a book or just a blog or, or an article, and then talk about it. And I think it is so impactful because it gives us the, yeah, the same language, the same framework with which to discuss a situation. And it's extremely helpful. Thank you, Kai. It was wonderful having you here. I appreciate the discussion. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. dot